Well, hey, how you doing? Y'all good? Uh, I want to say hello. My name is Jason. I serve here at the church. If it's your first time here, we're really glad that you're here as we begin our Christmas series. Also want to say uh, hello to our other locations at East and downtown, as well as our online audience and even our television audience and maybe even a podcast. We're everywhere. Uh, but uh, wherever you're tuning in or hearing this, we're really glad you're here as we kick this off. Uh, we are talking about Christmas miracles. And um, the, the word miracle, just as we get kind of started here, from the Latin word mirari, means to wonder. If you think about something unexpected or surprising, something you can't quite explain. Uh, and that's the kind of stuff that we're looking at today. Today, we're going to really focus in on God's hope and his timing. Uh, but I got a question. How many of you love Christmas? I mean, I, I love it. Yeah, uh, I, I love the music. Uh, I love Christmas specials. Give me a Garfield, Peanuts, Christmas special all day long. Mickey's Christmas Carol. I'll take whatever you got. Um, I love Christmas movies. I've already watched a few uh, on Thanksgiving, which is great. It's kind of some traditions. I'll even sit through a Christmas Hallmark movie. Anybody like those? Um, you know, the one where, you know, the, the girl owns a struggling stationery store and... <laughs> Um, dating a guy that's totally wrong for her, right? I mean, and she's preparing to spend Christmas with her meddling family uh, in the process, uh, beats the overlooked guy from school uh, that grew up to be quite well, this guy who wrote her, will you go out with me, check yes or no, and she checked no. Um, and so Christmas is here, her life's a mess, Christmas is terrible, all the things happen, all the shenanigans that's for a good hour, 15 minutes. By the time you get to the end of the movie, she saves her struggling uh, stationary store, dumps the guy that's wrong with her, and then uh, who walks through her store but the, uh, the overlooked guy with a note that says, will you go out with me, check yes or no? And this time she says, yes, with snow falling gently on the outside. <laughs> it's a Christmas miracle. I mean, that's... That's a... Uh, I've thought a lot about this, apparently, but if you've heard one plot, you've heard them all. Um, well, there's nothing like a good story. And uh, today, what we're going to do is we're going to go into the Christmas story. We're going to look at some parts of the Christmas story we don't often talk about. Uh, I think in church, if you only go to Christmas, you probably only know about these kind of in passing, but we're going to dig kind of deep today. I hope you're all right. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 2, if you want to go there, if you have your Bibles or uh if you can go on your app, on your phone, whatever it is that, that you do. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the, uh, the miracles in the Christmas story of God's timing. It's not quite a Hallmark movie, uh, but it's important because we discover that God orchestrates people, events, and circumstances to come together at just the right moment. And so that's where we enter the story in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We're just going to walk through, through this uh, Read each passage, just see what God has to share with us. Is that cool? All right. <clears throat> I think we have it up on the screen. We do. Let me get out of the way for you. All right. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Now, we'll stop there for just a moment. Uh, now, spoiler alert. Uh, the wise men, who are these wise men, the magi? Well, they're not necessarily the we three kings we sing about or perhaps even what we have on our nativity scene. Uh, we're going to discover there, there are a whole lot more than that. Uh, but here's four things we know from this passage of Scripture about these wise men, the magi. They're from the east. 
They expected the Messiah. They saw his star and they came to worship. Now, uh, the Magi being from the east, they were most likely from a tribe based in Babylon uh, in the Middle East, in the Persian Empire. They were a significant tribe of educated elites and held great influence within the Persian government. Uh, but they themselves were not kings. So I hate to tell you this, the we three kings. I mean, maybe there's other kings. I don't know. But there wasn't these guys, okay? In fact, there probably wasn't three of them. Probably a, a whole entourage. They were actually more like the king makers of the East. They affirmed kings due to their elite status. It's been said that they served as the Senate and Supreme Court kind of all rolled in one within their government. Again, uh, no one reigned without their approval. Uh, now, it was likely a significant entourage that came from Persia, from Babylon, to Jerusalem. Uh, many think it's hundreds, maybe even a thousand. So it included the tribe of Magi. Uh, it also included Persian military, cooks, artisans, you know, all, all of the animals and, every, and all the, everything you would need to keep that large group uh, intact and safe and, and well-fed. So they're traveling probably 40 to 60 days across the desert from one country, in, uh, from the city of Babylon in Persia, to, to Jerusalem. So this is a diplomatic visit. This is a, a pretty significant deal. Everywhere they go, they're going to grab attention. Now, here's, here's the other thing we know. The Magi expected uh, the Messiah because they were exposed to Judaism uh, from the Jews who were uh, held in uh, exile in Babylon for a season. In fact, there are many prophets that came out of there. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of going to Babylon. We know that the prophet Daniel, if you know Daniel in the lion's den, well, he was a, a prophet uh, that was based in Babylon. We know that in Daniel chapter 5, verses 11 through 12, he ended up becoming the chief of the Magi. He had been trained. He had ascended into rank. He even served as prime minister in Babylon. And it's assumed that his influence greatly influenced this particular group of the Magi, even though they themselves may not have been Jewish uh, because of everything that they studied. We know that Daniel, though, remained faithful to the one true God, even in Babylon. Uh, but make no mistake, uh, he exposed the Magi to the potential coming at this time of the Messiah. In Daniel 9, he gives a lot of this language with regards to the expectation of the king of the Jews who would come back to save his people. They anticipated the messianic deliverer in the line of David. In Genesis 49.10, we learn, uh, we see uh, this prophecy come to light of the expected Messiah. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is kingly language that the king is coming back and going to enter the story. Numbers 24, 17 uh, reinforced this. He said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And it's believed Daniel's influence, as well as other prophets, were taken seriously by the tribe of the Magi. So when they saw his star, as kind of reference to that Numbers passage, the, the star, they kind of took that seriously. They were genuine seekers of the truth. Uh, and as evidence right here in Matthew 2, they were on the lookout for the sign that the king of the Jews, the Messiah, had arrived. And when they saw this star, it was unusual enough to capture their attention. And it indicated to them, uh, something's happened in Israel. We must go. Now, this group, 
It's a little goofy, might be a little harder for us to, to explain. I often think of them like a bunch of Gandalfs from Lord of the Rings, uh, pointy hats and everything, maybe not. But, but they had a sort of priesthood. They held an interest in religion and philosophy, but also science and superstition, astronomy and astrology. Uh, not saying all of that's good, by the way, but what they were trying to do is just get to the truth. And so they would often be influenced by certain things over, over all this time. And Daniel obviously had an influence. And when they saw this star lining up with the prophecy, they said, whoa, this must be real. And so it captured their attention. But they didn't just come to, to find out more. They came to worship. Uh, they knew the time. They waited for the moment. And God declared the moment by the appearance of the wondrous or miraculous star. Now, uh, they believed that this sign was so unusual that, that they would go through the months-long journey through the Arabian desert. That's great risk back then, by the way. It's not like us getting in our RV going across, you know, the state. It's, it's, it's a much greater risk, uh, but one they were willing to take. And they brought with them expensive gifts for this unknown baby, and were going to worship him. And their arrival in Jerusalem, again, was a significant diplomatic visit because they expected that they would share in the joy with the rest of the, the Jews that the king had come. And so that's what they expected. Uh, their initial, the initial appearance of the star got them near, but not quite there. And this is how they landed on the doorstep of King Herod. And he would be an unlikely person to point them in the right direction. We're gonna pick it up in verse three of Matthew. Uh, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So we've talked a little bit about the Magi. I wanna talk a little bit about Herod. I'm gonna give you a lot of information, okay? This, I promise this information provides you with some context uh, to, to win arguments at dinner or something. I don't know. Uh, but I think it's helpful to know who this Herod was. He was known as, he was King Herod, also known as Herod the Great. What made him great? Well, quite frankly, by how we measure greatness in the world, he did quite a bit. Uh, now, Israel, if you don't know, was situated uh, with the Persian Empire to the east and the Roman Empire to the west, but Israel was under Roman occupation. Now, the Romans, uh, they did allow people to practice their religion and their social order. All they required was they were gonna provide a strong military, which along with that came high taxes. So that, that was kind of the deal. Now, Herod's career, uh, began as a governor in the area of Galilee. And uh, he was appointed that by his father, who was an administrator under Julius Caesar. Uh, Herod the Great, which, by the way, is a title he gave himself, so I'm, you know, I'm pretty awesome. That's what pro wrestlers do, by the way, uh, but that's a whole other deal. Uh, but he's declared by Rome as king of the Jews. Pretty interesting. He was successful as a young governor. Uh, there were a band of terrorists in the region. He was able to squash that, restore law and order. He was a great orator uh, and a clever diplomat. Uh, he, during a famine, this is a good thing, he took some of his gold to purchase corn in order to feed his people to keep them going. I think, you know, that's, that's a pretty good thing. Uh, he was a great builder, and this is often why he's called Herod the Great. Uh, he... Uh, built the theater in Jerusalem, built a racetrack outside of town, built a great palace, and even began to help restore the temple. 
course, it took 50 years. He kept, it's a project that never ended, uh, but he kept embellishing it. But he, he continued to work on that. He uh, actually restored Samaria and renamed it. He built a port city called Caesarea after Caesar. And it's pretty amazing what they find out about this. He embellished cities like Beirut and Damascus and Athens. He built a fortress at Masada. Uh, he was a skilled and decisive leader. But that would be undermined by his bitterness, his jealousy, his insanity, and his suspiciousness. So if you're a great leader and you think, I do all these great things, I'm a great leader, everything you've done can be undermined by the kind of person that you are. It's a lesson to be learned here. He was also Herod the Horrible. He was really good at following his own truth, though. Um, he was suspicious of everyone, plotted to kill multiple people groups. Uh, he had 10 wives, 12 children. His most notable wife had a brother who he viewed as a threat. His brother was a priest. So he invited his brother-in-law to go swimming with him one day and drowned him very intentionally. Then he held a massive funeral and made sure everybody saw how openly and loudly he cried for his brother-in-law. Oh, really nice guy, really obviously very deceptive. Uh, he had a wife killed on a trumped-up uh, adultery charge, even killed her mother. He murdered two sons who he thought could be a threat to his throne. In fact, his lust for power enslaved him even to the end of his life. Five days before he died, he killed a third son he felt would be a threat. Um, when he was about to die, he retired to Jericho, had a palace built there. He was, he was ravaged with uh, disease. They, they think some of it's pretty disgusting. Uh, but as he was sick and he knew he was near death, he had ordered all the distinguished citizens of Jerusalem to be gathered and held in one place. And upon his death, there were orders to slaughter all the significant citizens at the same time because he felt that nobody would shed tears because of his death. So he would make sure that history knew, though, that people wailed at his death because all of them would be slaughtered and killed upon his death. Thankfully, after he died, they were released. But by the end of the life of his life, he was, he was clearly an insane madman, uh, driven by fear, jealousy, and revenge. So why was Herod in Jerusalem troubled with the arrival of the Magi? Well, as uh, first century historian Josephus said, uh, they saw that he was a violent and bold man and very desirous of acting tyrannically. So now we see why he was troubled. Uh, Herod was a man that when people panicked, or excuse me, when he panicked, people died. Lots of them. That's why Jerusalem was troubled. Keep the king happy or bad things will happen. The Magi themselves would have spooked Herod a large entourage from another country saying there's a king of the Jews has arrived, that's not good news to Herod. And the temple he was rebuilding might have signaled to the wise men, hey, he's gonna be happy about this. He's on our side. He's, he's expecting this just like we are. And he was excited to play that part well. I'm a true worshiper. Yeah, tell me where this king of the Jews is. And so we're gonna go back to uh, Matthew 2, beginning of verse five through eight. Uh, they told him in Matthew, and this is the, the chief priests and the scribes. When he asked where the king of the Jews would be born, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Oh, isn't that nice? You think, think that's legit? I wonder, yeah. When did, so when was he born? Okay, roughly in the last two years. Okay, I found out from these guys, actually not Jerusalem that you expected he would be born in, which is the capital city, just five or six miles south of here in Bethlehem. That's where he'll be. So when you find out exactly where he is, let me know. I'll come and worship him. Now, it was common knowledge that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem's a small town, uh, not very big. And, and, but it was where David w- uh, grew up. And this common knowledge, the scribes knew it, the Pharisees knew it, uh, the rabbis knew it, the Jews knew it. Now Herod knows it, and he's passing this information on to the Magi so that they'll go find him, do the, do the preliminary work for him so that he can eliminate the threat of Jesus. Now, Bethlehem, we knew this would be the place, everybody knew this would be the place that the Messiah was born. In fact, John 7, verses 40 through 44, uh, says this, on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Which is where Jesus grew up, but not where Jesus was born. Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. We'll come back to that. That's a theme. The people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. You know, in Matthew, here we find out Jesus was indeed born in Bethlehem. Now, he, Herod, he hatches a plot with the religious aristocracy at the time to find out where the Messiah was to be born. And here we go in verse 7, Herod puts on an act I want to worship him. So he calls that second meeting with the Magi after the initial meeting, says, here's what we know. Uh, he got the window of time. He said, he's in Bethlehem. I'll give you that information. What do you know about when he was born? We know was, we saw this star a couple of years ago or somewhere in that time frame, roughly. And that information was exchanged. They leave on a genuine search to go worship the king. Herod, of course, can't wait for them to respond back about where he lives. Uh, So Jesus, though, Jesus was born and immediately divided people. Divided people into two camps, and that's what's represented today by the Magi and the Herod. The Magi types who are on a genuine search to to find Jesus, to worship him. And the Herod types, where Jesus is a threat to their way of life, their order, the way they've always done, done things, their own purposes, everything. He's a threat. And these are the two groups that immediately upon his birth, they're divided into. It happened in his ministry, and it's still happening today. We're going to pick this up back up in verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great Joy. A light shines in the darkness. And evidently, uh, this was a supernatural astronomical event. It might have been hidden in plain sight that unless you knew what you were looking for, you might have missed it. We don't know. It might have been something completely supernatural. Maybe even an angel might have been uh, what was described as a star. Uh, and they were seeking some sort of sign, and it came in the form of the star. And they knew it was the approximate time, again, due to the prophecy from Daniel 9. Uh, They waited for the moment, and God declared the moment 
by the appearance of this star. See, I, I believe what happened, that they saw this star at Jesus' birth when they're in Babylon. They take the journey. They may not have seen the star since then. They just knew it was the direction of Israel and likely in Jerusalem where the king would be. And so they may not have seen the star again until after they started making their way to Bethlehem. And suddenly the star reappears over the house in Bethlehem. And that causes a reaction to them. They got fired up when they saw that star again. This is the star we saw. Were we crazy going on this journey? We hadn't seen it. It's been all this time. And then we're told he's going to be in Bethlehem and we're making our way due south. And there it appears again. And so they have this reaction like, oh man, this is actually happening. This is real. And so they, they leapt up for joy. And I often think um, about, well, let's go back to this verse. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Think about that. See, this should be what marks our lives by joy. Joy is the theme of heaven. And it should also be the theme of our lives because you and I deserve death, but Jesus came and gave us life. He died in our place for our sins and offers eternal life forever with him. And that joy that can't quite be comprehended unless you understand, it comes from a place of, of gratitude that I don't deserve this, but God gives his grace anyways. And as a result, I love him back. And that joy that just is unending is what should mark our lives. And I imagine that's the kind of joy that the Magi might've felt when they saw Jesus. And I was thinking, you know, what, what could be uh, a modern example of what genuine joy looks like? Well, I'm the dad of a son who uh, had been deployed a couple times to Afghanistan. And when he, whenever he's returned, it's always joyful. Kind of my daughter would shed tears, I would cheer, and it would be kind of that thing when he would return home. But also, I, did, I thought, well, I'm not gonna show you a video. I also have a video of that, I won't show that today. But I was thinking, I also love to look at the video of soldiers returning homes to their dogs. I think that's a great picture of joy. So we, here, we'll take a look at a few. Awesome. This is how 
I imagine it'll be like when we go home to be with the Lord. Even our tails will wag. <laughs> you can't hide it. You can't deny it. That is pure joy. Obviously, the soldiers are going to be joyful with that. Our dogs are going to be joyful with that. Uh, but God is, is so good. And this must have been how the Magi felt when they saw that star again hovering over. That's when you say exceeding joy. Imagine that. They can't contain it. They can't deny how they feel. Kind of gives great new meaning to the, to the song, Joy to the World, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Uh, we're going to continue on in verse 11. Keep this rolling. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So right over the house, remember, this has been a couple of years. They're no longer in the manger. So the nativity set's not quite right. Wise men never got there. Not three of them, probably a lot of them. That's all right. They get to the house and they, what do they do? They worship him and they give gifts. Uh, many months have passed since uh, the family had uh, had a new arrival on the scene uh, and they stayed there until they heard from the Lord. But the Magi, they brought gifts and these are common gifts. You've heard this many times of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, this was, these were gifts of great symbolism and significance. They were actually great gifts for the coronation of a king, very proper. And here they would be presented uh, to Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. Talk about a meal train. There you go, that'll work. Uh, that dog would hunt. But so let's talk about gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, it is fit for a king. Uh, kings had crowns made of gold. They had jewelry made of gold. They had temples made of gold. I don't think I'd impart on you too much why gold is so significant and a part of what makes an appropriate gift for a king. So let's talk about frankincense. Now, this speaks of Christ's deity, that, that he is God. Frankincense is pure incense from the tree in that region. It was used ceremoniously in the incense. And in fact, it was only the only incense allowed by Scripture to be used on the altar. We learn this in Exodus 34.30. It's frankincense. So this is a very uh, sacred incense that's used as a gift for a wedding because a wedding is a sacred moment between a husband, a wife, and God Almighty. Uh, and it even had an ointment benefit, worth a great deal. And myrrh, myrrh signifies that, he, that Christ, not only being fully God, but at this time was fully man. Uh, myrrh was a sap used in incense and perfume, uh, used as a stimulant, and often used uh, to prepare the body for burial because it had a very fragrant uh, way with it. it. It helped with smells. Or somewhere in the Greek, I think it says stank. It helps with stank. I think that's what that is. <laughs> But it's needed for the mess of life, the mess of human life. Human life is messy, it stinks, and you need something to kind of cover up that stink. That's what the myrrh helps with. And interestingly, this is kind of a side note, but in Isaiah 60, verse 6, there's a prophecy about the second coming of Jesus when Jesus comes back, because um, he is, by the way. He came once, he's coming again, I guarantee it. Uh, I bet my life on it. But part of that prophecy in that passage says that he will be given gold for a king, frankincense because of God, but no myrrh. 
Why? Because Christ is risen, no longer human. Christ has already rose, raised again. He defeated death and all the stink that comes with it. That is a promise to you and I. It's fascinating. Myrrh is given here to signify Christ has been born. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Later, it will not be presented to him. It's not needed anymore. That's very hopeful to me. A nerdy but hopeful thing, I know. And verse 12, uh, just to pick it up again, it says, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Herod could not outfox the wise men because the Lord was on their side. The Magi tricked him, did not go back to tell him where the Christ was specifically, and they went about another way, meaning they zigged when Herod thought they would zag. And that's what the wise men did here with the help of the Lord. Now, the wise men are gonna leave the scene of the story, but the story's not over. Picking it up in verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search the child for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, after the coronation of King Jesus by the wise men, uh, Jesus, Joseph, and Mary are not sent to Jerusalem. They're not yet sent to their hometown in Nazareth. They're sent to an entirely different country to escape the wrath of a deadly king. The gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, as great as they are for the coronation, likely provided them the resources in order to get to Egypt and survive in Egypt because it was worth a lot of money. Uh, God knew that. God prepared that well in advance. And this time, God used dreams to often reveal his will much like the word of God does to us today and the spirit of God within us. And Joseph thankfully listened and obeyed and in doing so fulfilled yet another prophecy that, he, that the Lord would come out of Egypt. Question for you, are you listening and obeying to God? Obeying God, even when it doesn't make sense, even when you're afraid. You know, following Jesus comes with opposition and we should expect that. There are Herods, but the thing about Herods is they die. But before Herod dies in this story, Herod goes on in complete terror. Pick it up in verse 16. This is a dark piece of scripture, but I think it's important to the story. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tra tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then he fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod murdered all males two years and under. This is likely two or three dozen uh, based on the size of Bethlehem and the surrounding area. This is a complete slaughter. Um, great evil is done through Herod. Satan has his way with him. By the way, if you ever wanna know the villains of any story, they're the ones who try to exterminate children. Pretty good clue. Um, and then sadly, another prophecy is fulfilled, a tragic one, that Rachel was weeping for her children. This is a personification that, that the mothers were aching and crying out because of this unjust act, this terrible, horrible thing. This is why we're so thankful for justice, by the way. I take comfort when I look at things like this God uses it, didn't cause it, 
but he will use it and turn it around and use it for good. I take comfort in knowing that those children were taken care of by the Lord after death. They're with the Lord wagging their tails. I also take comfort in the justice of knowing those responsible for this slaying, as well as Herod, also were taken care of by God. Heaven and hell are real, and thank God they are. And you and I, we deserve hell, just like Herod and those responsible for the slaying. But thank God, we have Jesus, we have a way, he's our only way, and we put all of our faith and hope in him. I hope you do too. But those responsible for this slaughtering, justice was served. And as the Johnny Cash song goes, you can run on for a long time, you can run on for a long time, you can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. That sounds brutal, unless you've ever had any, you've seen that evil up close and personal, you want justice. We want justice here in this time and place, and definitely we're gonna have justice in the end. All things will be made right. Imagine if Joseph, though, he had not trusted God and they stayed. God wasn't gonna allow that to happen. He took his family to another country. It's dangerous and ridiculous unless God told him to do so. Uh, this is why we must trust God because we don't know what lies ahead, but he does. And we have to trust that he loves, us, he loves us enough to do what's best. All right, we're gonna close in verse 19. <clears throat> I'm speeding up for the sake of time. By the way, you've almost gone through an entire book of the Bible we've studied, so good job. Way to hang with me. Uh, verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. All roads lead back home. Joseph and Mary came from Nazareth in the region of Galilee. They went to Bethlehem to be counted in the census because Joseph was in the line of David. They fled to Egypt to escape the wrath of a deadly king, and instead of going back to Bethlehem or going to Jerusalem, uh, they made it back home to kind of the one-horse hick town called Nazareth. Uh, that's not a, by the way, that's not an insult. I kind of like those towns, but, uh, but that's the point. But see, God's path, you always think it's gonna be the straight line, but often it's not a straight line from point A to point B. You can see even with Jesus and his birth, it wasn't a straight line. It was down here, over here, like this. If you're wondering why your life doesn't easily go from here to here, I certainly have that in my life where it's like all over the place and boy, God really doesn't know what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing if you listen to him and obey him. It's not always a straight line, but he can trust him that he knows the right way. A final prophecy in this section that he would be called a Nazarene. This is a common theme among the prophets about the Messiah was that he would be rejected and despised. He wouldn't be thought much of. Pastor David in his message on grief last weekend, if you didn't hear it, you need to. Um, amazing, by the way, he's an amazing guy. I love him. But he had a passage, Isaiah 53.3. He read this last week with regards to grief. Here I'll, I'll mention it with regards to uh, what the Messiah would be like. He said he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Despised and rejected. This was also a common theme of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. It was thought of as, a, like I said, a one-horse town, unlikely to be a place where the Messiah would grow up. But um, it's interesting 
We know from John 146, the view of Nazareth, when Nathaniel, one of the disciples said to another disciple, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's a great question. It's actually a question we all must answer with or wrestle with. And the response to this is excellent. Philip, another disciple said, well, come and see. God uses unlikely people and even unlikely places to do unlikely things. And he can use you too. If you feel like you're unlikely, you're exactly the kind of person God uses. Why? Because he gets the glory. If he can do it through you, he can do it through anything and it reveals something about his goodness and how big and amazing he really is. So what are the odds? What are the odds that all these prophecies and events would line up at just the right time to fulfill these promises? It's pretty remarkable when you think about it. It's wild. And what are the odds that you are hearing this message, reading these words with me today, despite everything in your life? Because I believe God is calling you. So I have another question. What about you? We talked a lot about the scripture, what it has to say in events from a long time ago, but what does that mean for you today? Well, God went to great measures and even moved heaven and earth to prove his great love for you. If God orchestrated all of this, imagine how much hope you actually have that he's aware of the details of your life, that his timing is perfect, even if it's not your timetable. He has a plan, and you and I have hope. And God's not done with you. You're still breathing. God's not done with you. Yes, you can expect opposition. But we serve a God who never says oops. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, and he loves you big time. So who are you in this story? Are you Magi or Herod? Will you be like the Magi and be wise and seek him? That's a check, yes. Or will you be like the Herods and be foolish and reject him? This is the question you and I must answer. As the prophet Jeremiah put it, uh, Jeremiah 29, 13, Jeremiah is speaking to the people of Israel in their captivity captivity to Babylon, or excuse me, exile to Babylon. I think it applies to you and I today. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I'm asking you, are you seeking him? This is your shining star in the darkness. King Jesus is a threat to the Magi and the ways of this world. He's also a threat to your way of life. I know that, but he offers you a better way to live. Christ is calling you to repent. What that means is to turn from your way, turn from this Herod way and turn towards following him. He has a better way for you. He came for you, he died for you, he rose again for you. And he is calling you to seek him, to worship him and to trust him. He's handing you the letter. says, will you follow me? Check yes, check no. You can't leave it unchecked. It's one way or the other. There is no neutral. There is no in-between. Anybody who's ever told you that doesn't care for you enough to tell you the truth. It's yes or no. What is it for you? I pray it's yes. And as the saying goes, wise men still seek him. Let's pray. Father.
Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for sending your son to die in our place for our sins. God, thank you that you make it abundantly clear that you are the way, that we have a hope and a future because of you. God, thank you that um, you're calling us, that you love us enough right now that we're hearing this. That means you called us. May we answer yes and seek you. In Jesus' name, amen.